Thanks. Looks like summer. Everybody's tan. Either that or you got your teeth whitened. I don't know. 1 Samuel 22. Get there this morning. We're going to read through the chapter in just a moment. It's only 23 verses, but powerful conclusion to some of David's situation here. The scenario is dire. The gloves are off. Saul wants him dead. He's hunting him. David's on the run. He's in exile at this point. Uh, the priests at Nob helped him escape, uh, even though they weren't quite sure what was going on. But we're going to see the repercussions of all this this morning. Um, 22 is a, a powerful chapter, and it speaks to us in a lot of ways. So let's ask the Lord to bless it and open our ears so we can receive. Father, this morning we ask you to bless the word, and we ask that as it goes forth, it would do so under the power and demonstration of your Holy Spirit. God, prepare our hearts, plow up any fallow ground, the hard ground. Open our ears and our eyes so that we can see and we can discern. Holy Spirit, allow these principles to break through our preconceptions and our wrong ideas and, and, and replace the wrong thoughts we have. Lord, let your truth change us from the inside out. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. You know, that's the point of the word this morning. We don't read it just because it's a religious obligation or we do it because it's historical or there's some good life lessons in there. This is meant to change us from the inside out. Amen. And you know what? If you and I will open our hearts and let it pour in, it will change us, even if we don't want it to. <laughs> do you ever have the Holy Spirit tuck something in your head that you didn't want to know? It's like the preacher, la, 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 but it gets in there anyway. And then on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, he's reminding you of it. I love the word. So here it is, 1 Samuel 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went to him there. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from Mizpah to Moab and said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. Then Saul heard that David and his men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree and the, uh, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when the son makes a covenant when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day then Doeg the Edomite who was standing by the servants of Saul said I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob to Ahimelech 
to the son of Hetub. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest of the son of Hetub. And all his father's household and the priests were in Nob. And all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Hetub. He And he answered him, I am my Lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who, am, uh, and who among all your servants is faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me, do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. The king said to the guards who attended him, turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death. But their hand also was with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hand to attack the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doag the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he, and he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, infants, also oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one, but one son of Ahimelech, the son of Atub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I know on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. What a chapter. So many things coming unglued here, a bad situation being made worse. Saul plunges over the edge in a way here that, you know, there's some lines you cross that you can't uncross. Anybody? So verse one here, it starts off with David fleeing you know, last chapter he went to Gath and he went to the Philistines and, you know, the, the king there was not too happy to be harboring him, so he doesn't at this time. The Philistines will give him some comfort during his exile down the road, but not at this juncture. So David flees from there because all the people know who he is and they called him the king already. They said, isn't this the king of the land? We noted that sometimes your enemies think more correctly about you than those who should support you. And here's David being looked at as a king already. And they're like, why are you coming here? And so he flees. And where does he go? He has no place else to go, really. I mean, he, he can't go to the priests. He can't go to his family. He can't go to Jonathan anymore. He can't go to the prophets. He, he has nowhere to go. So he goes to a cave. He goes to the cave of Adullam. Now, if you think about it, here's a man who got anointed to be king. And instead of being celebrated and groomed to be the next king, he's on the run for his life, and now he's hiding in a cave. I don't know about you, but caves are probably not the first choice of where you would want to live. 
when you're, you know, when you're looking for some place to live, you're like condo, apartment, rent a house, cave. A king in a cave. It's not right. And he runs there and he hides there and he's in, he's in exile. His family hears that he's there. And all his brothers and his fathers have show up to the cave. Now you might think, oh, isn't that sweet? They went to support David. Not exactly. You see, the reason they showed up at the cave is because since David's name was on the king's execution list, David's family was now on the chopping block. So before we think it's all brotherly love and, you know, support and fraternal, it's not really all of that. You know, I'm not sure what his brother's attitude was toward him, but, you know, I remember how they treated him when he went to see what Goliath was up to. His older brother certainly had it in for him. But here comes his whole family at the cave. And, you know, their name is... Uh, on the chopping block. Now the whole house of David is in trouble. They're in danger and they could be executed at any time. Saul is out of control. And if you know anything about out of control people, you can never predict what an out of control person is going to do. If you're around people who are impulsive and out of control, get away from them. They're going to get you in trouble. You might learn their ways. You might copy what they do. So the Bible says that to avoid being around the violent man, at least you learn his ways. So here's a situation where, you know, David is fleeing. He's in exile. He, he's in a cave. His family is there uh, because they're in trouble and uh, everything is coming apart. Verse 2 is quite the description of the people that come to him. Now, uh, news travels. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. But somehow, some way, the news travels. And in verse 2, some people gathered themselves to David. Now listen to this group of people that comes to David. Everyone, say everyone. everyone. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them there. Uh, there was about 400 men with him. So what a group of people to come to you. I mean, what else? People who don't shower, people who... Steal, you know, I mean, what, what do you want to come to you when you're in trouble? You want good people to come to you, amen? You want strong people. You want people of integrity. But that's not what gathers himself to David. Now, look at this, and you might think, what in the world? They're in distress, they're in debt, and they're discontented. Why would this, why would this group of people gather themselves to a person who's been exiled? Now, th- these people here gather, and there are about 400 of them, and David becomes their leader. Now, think about it. You're running for your life. Do you want to be the leader of this group? The three D's? Debt, discontent, distressed? Come on, you don't want that group around you. Yet they gather themselves to him. And you say, well, why, why do they gather themselves to him? You know, it's really not as strange as it seems. The formation, what you're seeing here is people who are disenfranchised gathering themselves to a man who's been exiled. And what you see here, historically, this happens a lot. It's really the formation of a rebellion taking place. These people who gather themselves to David have been so abused by Saul and they feel so disenfranchised that they gather themselves to a good man that Saul threw out. Are you catching this? 
You know, there are people in life who for whatever reason feel disconnected, feel disenfranchised, they're in debt, they're in distress, they're not happy, and you know, sometimes they fall through the cracks of life. These are the people who are abused and forgotten or marginalized, and Saul created a lot of people like that in his kingdom. Now there's only 400 that have come to David, but think about this, when leadership abuses people, now, now I'm, not, I'm not saying that, you know, when, when leadership doesn't give everybody all the free stuff they want. So, so don't get crazy on me out there, all right? You know, we have no right to covet other people's wealth. It's a violation of God's commandments to covet, to think, well, I want what you earn. That's just wrong, okay? We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who have been abused by Saul. And Saul was abusive, and he's been out of control for a long time. So here's a bunch of people who are distressed and in debt and in discontented, and they gather themselves to David. Why? Because David has been mistreated in such an epic way that they figure if this guy understands anybody, he'll understand us. Many times what God gathers around us is not what we would have chosen ourselves, right? Do you ever see yourself surrounded by people and you think, how in the world did these people, how, why, God, why did you, and God knows better than us. And what God is doing here is bringing him a remnant to support him and to gather around him, and he needs some help because he's going to be running for his life. Now, in verses 3 and 4, something interesting happened. Remember, David has already appealed to the Philistines. They're Israel's enemy. Now he appeals to the king of Moab. The Moabites are the perennial enemies of Israel. You see David running to enemies of his country because he's exiled from it, and he's looking to them for help. Now, you don't know over the years in his military history, uh, obviously some of these nations had learned his name, had learned he was a man of integrity, and they're willing to, you know, they're willing to help him now because of who he is. That says something interesting when you, you're so, have such good character that your enemies are willing to help you. Now, realize there's going to be an exchange here. They're going to want something for that. Always realize that. If you got people helping you that are doing something for you, nine times out of ten, they, they want to barter. They want something in return. It says, now, therefore, what do we have? Give me, oh no, I'm sorry, that, that was last week's chapter. But uh, it says, David went to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what the Lord will do for me. So everything is in upheaval in his life. He doesn't even know how this is gonna work out. He doesn't even know if God's gonna save him or if he's gonna die, if he's ever gonna become king or if he's just gonna be hunted down till Saul gets him. So what does he do? His family comes to him. As a good son, he makes provision for his mother and father. He goes to the king of Moab and he says, can you watch my parents for me? Because you know what? They're too old to run and hide in caves. And so there again, you see the integrity of David's heart. Realize his family might not have been the most supportive to him, yet he does the right thing and supports them. Now, strangely enough, the king of Moab agrees, and that's God's favor, and we don't know the dynamics or the variables there, but, or what the deal was made, but somehow, some way, he covers David's family at his request, and he protects them. Now, see that as the favor of the Lord, because when we're in crisis, whoever assists us, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, it's a blessing to us, amen? Many times, God will have people bless us that don't even like us. You think, oh, everybody has to like me, so then they'll be nice to me. When you have the favor of God on you, even your enemies will be good to you. 
So much more important that we stay in God's favor than we do things to bend over backward to appease men. David's in a place that the scripture calls a stronghold. Let's talk about that a little bit in verse five. It says, the, uh, well, actually in verse four, he left them and with the king of Moab, and he stayed. And that time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David depart and went to the forest of Herod. So David's in a stronghold. What, what does that mean? It was in a place that was, had a tactical advantage for him. He felt safe there. It was a place where he wouldn't be easily attacked, where he could see his enemies coming, where he had a place where he could egress from if they were being assaulted. So it was, it was a place of military advantage. It made tactical sense for him to be there with a small force. And he felt Felt fairly safe there. Now, I want you to see something. David feels safe. He uses military sense and he you know, surmises that this is a good place for me. Yet God sends a prophet to him to tell him, get out of there. Look what Gad says. The prophet Gad says, don't stay here. Basically, it looks safe on paper. It makes sense militarily, but this is not the place for you. David is told by the prophet directly to go to Judah, and he takes refuge there in the forest of Hereth. Now think about this. There are times in life where we do things that make sense on paper. There are times in life where we calculate it the best we can and we figure out this is the best move. Yet God knows better than us even when things seem to add up for us. We need to be open to hear what he has to say. There is a way that seems right to a man, the Bible says, but the end leads to destruction. Thank God that David was spiritually acute enough to hear the voice of the Lord. Thank God that there was a prophetic voice among him to speak to him. What an advantage it is for us as the people of God that God speaks to us in crisis. What an advantage it is for us as the people of God that we have a prophetic voice in the church to speak to us. We should never, ever, you know, take that for granted that we hear the word of the Lord in this place that we have a prophetic voice in this place, that people hear from the Lord and, and our congregation is instructed and warned and all these things are very important. What an advantage he has here. The five-fold ministries that we have in crisis, we have teachers and pastors and prophets and the body. How many times has someone in the body come to you and just given you a word because they were praying for you and they had the word of the Lord for you? Come on, raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. And it saves us. I'll never forget, Pastor Mike, my senior year when we, you know, when we had our graduation and the, the prophetic teams prophesied to us those things that they told us to do and not to do, razor-sharp prophecy in, in my life, in his life. And you know what? Those things guide me. I remember I had it on a cassette, and it stayed with me for a long time, and it kept me on the path that led to my destiny. You know, and when I got to where I was going, that cassette just disappeared. It was like God saying... You're done. There's another word for you now. And God is faithful like that to speak to us. And so thank God for the, the prophetic voice and thank God for God speaking to his children, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers. It's all super important. There's many in the body of Christ that want to minimize that and say, oh, you know, it's not for today. The gifts are not for today. Those churches are dead and dying. 
Because you cannot push the Holy Ghost out or call what the Holy Ghost does the devil and have the blessing of God on your congregation. Verses 6 and 7. David's in the stronghold. He's told to move. Saul catches up with where David is. Now remember, news travels fast and there's spies and eyes everywhere. Saul is in Gibeon. I want you to see uh, Saul these days, the way he's behaving is actually uh, you know, pretty interesting, but the word seems to continue to tell us about his posture and his attitude. It said, then Saul heard that David and his men uh, who were with him had been discovered. Now, Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree, and listen, on the height with his spear in his hand. Now, you notice Saul is constantly having his spear in his hand. He's thrown it at David twice to try to kill him. He's thrown it one time at his own son, Jonathan. Now he's standing with his men in, in a place of you know, safety, yet he has his spear in his hand. What's that spear all about? That spear is the sign of intimidation of a king who does not have a heart for his people anymore, but he's become a tyrant. He's wielding over them with intimidation through force. That's bad leadership. <laughs> So he's there with his spear. It seems like Saul's got a spear in his hand all the time. And his servants were standing around him within spear range. <laughs> Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? All right, let's just stop there for a second. What is Saul doing right here? He's got a spear. He's intimidating them. Notice what his argument is to leverage over them. He's like, I'm the king, and I can give you stuff. He's manipulating them. Exactly. And I want you to see this. This is the picture of someone who's a, a horrible person, a horrible leader at this point. Saul's going to cross a line here today that he can never uncross. He's intimidating people. He's, he's threatening violence. And he's manipulating people. Why? Because he's out of control. Why? Because he rejected God and the Holy Spirit withdrew from him. Understand, the only thing that keeps us from being unglued and ungodly and unprincipled is the Holy Spirit in us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Without the Holy Spirit, you and I need the Holy Spirit so much. Yes. Do you realize what we are without the Holy Spirit? Wretched sinners capable of the worst of sin. Yes. Oh, but I smell like a meadow. I'm nice. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one, the Bible says. So we need the Holy Spirit. Saul lost the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of what a person is like when they reject God and God withdraws himself from them. Let that be something that sticks in your mind. In all our, you know, in all the things that we do and the decisions we make and the, the fact that, you know, we don't want to submit to God and we don't want to submit to authority. This is a picture of getting what we want when we do that. It's pretty ugly. So verse 8, he basically says, you know what? I can, well, verse 6 and 7, he basically, I can give you fields and vineyards and positions, and I can make you commanders of 10,000s and thousands. I can promote you. I can make your life easy. I can give you stuff. What can David give you? 
He's on the run. He's, he's marked for death. He's in the cave. So Saul is trying to get them to see, yeah, I'm still king. You guys better serve me. In verse 8, he says, you've all conspired against me. There again, he's out of control. He's unglued. It's the broad brush. When anyone says, all of this and all of you and all of these people and all of them people, all, all, all. When you paint with a broad brush, <laughs> you've lost your mind. And Saul's lost his mind. You've all conspired against me. And what does he make himself? The victim here. The person who created this entire situation, who has now chased the next king away, a godly man, who's tried to kill him twice, it's all poor Saul. It's all you guys have all betrayed me. And as if there wasn't a cause. Now, his treachery doesn't leave him blameless. The fact that he's not godly anymore doesn't leave him blameless. It seems that the people who, you know, abandoned him at this point are people who have integrity. I'm alarmed at the people who support him. It's amazing how people will rally around a person who's wicked and support them even when they know. Would you let him watch your kids? Mm-mm, but I support them. There needs to be integrity in leadership. The wicked have a penchant for twisting the truth and playing the victim. You should write that down. The wicked have a penchant for twisting the truth and playing the victim. They'll always do it. They'll project things on you. You know, if they're a liar, everybody's a liar. If they're a thief, everybody's a thief. If they're disloyal, everybody's disloyal. They project their own maladies on other people. There's people who have accused me of things, and as they're speaking to me, I'm looking at their lips, and I'm like, I know it's them standing in front of me, but I hear the devil talking. Because you're saying things to me that aren't true about me. I mean, if you say something true about me, I'll agree with you and we can make fun of me together. Right? But the thing is, if you're saying, you're this and you're that, and I have been, you're this and you're that, and I'm like, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not those things. Wait a minute, you're those things. The wicked project. And here's Saul, and he's, he, you know, he's twisting the truth. He's playing the victim. And now Saul knows that Jonathan, his son, has made a covenant with David. Not good. When he knows that his son has actually betrayed him. I mean, Jonathan is in great peril right now, and that's a, that's a hard situation. He makes outlandish claims like everyone's conspiring against me, and Jonathan stirred up David against me. He actually blames Jonathan for stirring up David against him, and David's lying in wait with me. Saul's the, the big victim. He's going to ambush me and kill me. Do you listen to what he's saying? Wow. Don't be shocked when people do this thing. This is human nature in free fall. This is sin nature in free fall. The downward spiral of Saul, he's coming apart here. He, he is basically completely out of control. He's delusional. Now he's paranoid and he's blaming everything on everyone else when he knows deep down in his heart it's his fault because he refused to submit to God. He refused to listen to God. He cared more about what the people thought than what God said. It's his fault, and he knows it. Now, the people who are supporting him uh, or not supporting him were caught between a good man, David, and their king, who is now out of control. Now, I want to say something about this. He's yelling at them because they're not giving him information. He's yelling uh, at them because they're not supporting him. I want to say something here. Always support leadership until you can't support leadership anymore. <laughs> 
Always support leadership. Listen, you and I don't get to judge leaders and throw rocks at them. And, you know, when God puts a leader in place, support leadership until you can't support leadership. What do I mean by that? Until they've done something biblically that is obviously against God's word, till they've been confronted about it and refused to repent, till they have, you know, just basically said they're gonna do what they want. That's the point where you remove your support from leadership. The Bible talks about how we correct leadership and how we bring correction to the body of Christ. The problem is, is every time a leader makes a misstep, everybody starts firing arrows at him. How did that work out for, you know, uh, when Moses was the leader and Aaron and his sister there decided that they should be in charge? One got leprosy, the other one got in big trouble. <laughs> Always support leadership until you can't, until it's obviously, well, I, you know, they, they, you know they're, they're, they're not very nice or they preach too long or their clothes don't match. God's not going to support that. Right. Our clothes haven't matched ever. Years. <laughs> But Saul's men had an obligation to support him until he became ungodly. The moment he became ungodly and he refused correction and he'd become wicked, before God, they didn't have to support him anymore. Certainly the priests didn't have to support him. Oh, well, but some people just go, oh, he's the king. Oh, he's in charge. Oh, he's the pastor. Listen to me. Nobody is above the law and nobody's above God's law. Nobody. Clap a little, Scott. <laughs> You look too serious. You're making me nervous. So Saul's out of control. He's, he's mad. He's, nobody's supporting him. Enter Doag the Edomite. Now Doag, remember, he was the guy who was there at the priest. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the type of guy that I can't stand. A little weasel. He probably looked like a ferret. There's no picture of him. I could just picture him. He's like... But he's a little weasel, and he saw what David was doing. And, and, he, and David knew when, when this guy saw him that he was compromised. Now, remember, he was at Nob, and David met with the priest, and the, the, he told the priest that story, and they bought it. And, you know, here's Doeg the Edomite, and he, he speaks up here, and he wants to, you know, be Saul's little favorite, even though he's got to know Saul has no character, he has no integrity. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Etub, and inquire of the Lord for him. He gave him provisions, and he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Throws David right under the bus to appease wicked Saul and give him information that he was manipulating for. Saul manipulated the people. One guy with the weakest character cracks and give him the information that he wants to know. Now, verses 11 through 13, Ahimelech is summoned. All the priests are called to come before Saul. And he claims he didn't conspire against Saul. And Saul's not buying it. Ahimelech was kind of misled. Remember, David told him a tall tale about, you know, this super secret mission that he was on. You know, the king sent me on a super secret mission with no support and no weapons and no food. It was, you know, uh, can you give me some stuff? And so he kind of, he, he kind of flat out lied to him and manipulated the priest a little bit. Remember, we're going to see that David crossed some lines here that he shouldn't. But Ahimelech's like, hey, I didn't know what was going on. You know, he's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your guard. He's got all this favor in your house. What was I supposed to do? Say no to him? Saul's not buying it. 
verses 14 and 15, Ahimelech tries to reason with Saul. You know, it's like all the things I, I listed just there. He's your son-in-law. He's a trusted servant. You know, he, he fed me this story. I, I don't know any of the backstory here. I don't know what's going on. Yet there again, Ahimelech is not getting off the hook because Saul is not buying it. Because in his mind, everybody's against him. Everyone's conspiring against him. Nobody likes him. And David's trying to kill him. Verse 16, at this point, Saul trusts no one. He ignores the, the priest's claims. He ignores the priest's rebuttal. And he sentenced him to death. He says, you shall surely die. Now think about this. The king over God's people just sentenced the priests who minister to God's people to death. Verse 17 is amazing. Saul's men are commanded to kill the priests, but they refuse. Think about that. He says, you know, pull out your swords and kill the priests, and the, those men there wouldn't do it. Now, how do you think that meant, made Saul feel? Do you think he was happy about that? No, more people not listening to him. There again, th those who bear arms and exercise authority over people have to be personally responsible for, for how they use that power. If they misuse that power, they will be held accountable to God. A soldier can't say, well, I was just following orders when I slaughtered civilians, men, women, and children. That didn't work at Nuremberg, and it won't work now. You know, you're responsible for your actions. And these guys have enough integrity to realize, I'm not killing the priests of the Lord. They knew that meant they might die, but they're like, I'm not standing before God to answer for that. <laughs> Just because governments or leaders or gurus or whoever tell us to do things doesn't mean we get a, a, a blank check to just do. We're responsible for our own actions. Remember that. I've heard Christians say, well, this person said on TV or that, but what does the Bible say? Because this is what we're going to be held accountable for. So these guys, you know, they, they refuse to do it. Now, tyrannical leaders always use others to do their dirty work. Saul didn't pull out a sword and kill the priests. He asked his men to do it. You, you dirty yourselves. You defile yourselves. You dishonor God. And I'm just the one giving the orders. Understand that. Tyrants have no real power. Tyrants always have to use others to do their dirty work. You look in countries that collapse, they use the police and they use the military to control their populations. In Venezuela right now, that's exactly what's happening. That's right. And police are out there shooting and curb stomping people. Why? Because they're a disarmed populace. Thank God for our Constitution. Thank God for the Second Amendment. Thank God that in this country we are free to defend ourselves. And God help us if we get so apathetic toward the blessings and the freedoms that God has given us here that they are stolen from us as our face is in our phone and we're just, they're just raping us of our rights and taking our freedoms away. Wake up, church. Wake up, America. They wouldn't do it. Saul finds somebody else to do his dirty work. He tells, to, he tells Doag, you pull out your sword and you kill the priest. There he is, that little weasel. You know what? He does it, and he kills 85 men right there that day. He also goes to Nob to finish the job. Now, I know that rhymes, but it's not funny. He goes to Nob and he kills men, women, children, and animals with the edge of the sword. I don't know about you, but this is, to me, one of the darkest moments in Israel's history right here. That 
Doag murders all the priests and their families at the behest of Saul, at the order of Saul. What an incredibly wicked thing that has just taken place. They murder the priests, they murder the prophets, they reject God, they have a king who's out of control. Now remember, the people wanted a king. Give us a king so we can be like every other nation. How's that working out, guys? God knows best, doesn't he? The priests are dead. Their families are dead. Saul has crossed the line he could never uncross. Uh, one priest escapes here, uh, Abiathar, and Abiathar goes to David in verse 21. He basically tells him, you know, there, David has a remnant of godly people around him. He's got a priest. He's got a prophet. He's got some of that here. We're going to see that in just a second. But, you know, in verse 20, it looks like some, you know, there's some survival right here. It says, and one son of Ahimelech of Hetub named Abiathar escaped and fled. So a small little remnant here of one person. He escapes and he flees to David. Now Abiathar tells David the horrible news here and what has happened to the priests in verse 21. And this has got to break David here. I'm going to show you why. Abiathar told David that Saul killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, listen to this response. I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul he knew he was a weasel he knew he was compromised and I have brought about the death of every person in your father's house wow what a weight of responsibility it's bad enough that he's running for his life it's bad enough that he's in a cave it's bad enough that he's surrounded by all these people who are not the you know the dregs of society but now he gets this news does it ever seem like when things are you know when things are bad it just comes in waves david's having one of those seasons in his life I'm responsible for the death of everyone in your family. That's another huge weight for him to carry. I wonder how he feels about the racy little story he told the priest now. I wonder how he feels about his lie now. Maybe if he was honest with Ahimelech, Ahimelech could have did things a little bit more discreetly and not did them in plain view so Doag wouldn't have seen him. Maybe if he was honest with Ahimelech, he would have uh, known how to answer Saul or been able to protect his family. But he wasn't honest. You see, lies always damage us and they damage people around us. That's why lying is always wrong. We talked about this. It's always wrong. Why? Because it's a sin that has a ripple effect. We don't lie in a vacuum. Our lies hurt us and they hurt others. David has to live with the fact that his lie wiped out all the priests. Wow. And that this one priest that's coming to him to serve him now and to, to inquire the Lord from him is someone that he uh, facilitated the destruction of their entire family. Lying is never a good idea. It also always has negative consequences. David knew he was compromised. He, the brokenness and the guilt that he has to carry now is, is huge. I can't even fathom it. But understand, this is all the weight that's sitting on this man right now. And remember, he wasn't doing anything but minding his business, tending sheep. God picked him and the prophet anointed him. And sometimes the call of God is going to cost us everything in life. Sometimes to follow Jesus is going to cost us everything in life. But I want to tell you something. As a person who's followed the call of God in their life, it's worth it every minute, every time, and it'll be worth it for eternity. Amen. 
Verse 23 ends the chapter. David invites the one remaining priest to stay with him because it's his safest bet. Those who want to kill me want to kill you. Stay with me. The least I could do is protect you. So this tragic event that's beyond wicked, uh, the, the priest of God killed. Now I want you to understand this. They weren't killed by the Philistines. They weren't killed by the Moabites. They were killed by their own king and countrymen. Israel has done a great wickedness this day. It falls at the hands of Saul. It falls at the hands of Doag. And and God will definitely rectify the situation and bring justice for it. But right now it's a sad day in Israel. Saul has no access to God. He's become a demonic menace. David has a remnant with him. He has a priest. He has a prophet. He has the word of the Lord speaking into his situation. Even though it's a dire situation, see that the hand of the Lord is with David and the hand of the Lord is against Saul. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, in everything in life, there are gonna be times where all of us need to make really hard decisions. Father, let us have enough integrity and moral fortitude to do the right thing even when it costs so much. Father, every little sin that we do produces a harvest. The wages of sin are death. Help us, Lord, to keep us pure, keep us from sin, keep us from being so easily willing to cross lines and blur lines. Father, help us to be righteous so that may go well with us and we wouldn't hurt the people around us that we love and so that we would be usable in your hands. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise this morning. Praise God.